This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. One headline they're just starting to cross, and I think, you know, let's remind everybody that there, these are the minutes from two Fed meetings, both on March 3rd, that emergency uh, meeting that we got, and then again, that earlier than expected March 15th meeting that happened over the weekend. Uh, one headline I've got, extremely large degree of uncertainty on the outlook. That is uh, coming from that Fed meeting and also that rates at zero until the economy weathered the virus. So some initial thoughts on all of that. Let's get to our team. Kathleen Hayes is with us, global economics and policy editor at Bloomberg News. She's on the phone from the Poconos. Dave Wilson also with us, stocks editor at Bloomberg News, also with us from New Jersey. So Kathleen, initial thoughts here uh, as you see these minutes. You know, this is interesting because, um, you know, we have our entire Fed eco team, um, Washington, D.C. based uh, in any lockup that occurs when the minutes are released. I've been in this lockup. And generally speaking, you go in about an hour, 45 minutes before the minutes are released and you have time to read them and really vet them and make sure whatever headlines you put out, whatever story is is, is fully thought over, you know, and you put the most important things first. And the two headlines you read are all we have so far. I uh, have been looking around. I see that uh, Dow Jones, one of our competitors, who also covers the Fed very closely, uh, has a a brief story out, not this this outpouring of here's what the Fed was thinking. It was obviously uh, unusual because there was the unscheduled emergency meeting on March 2nd. So presumably as we see more headlines, uh, more of a a recounting of what the minutes say, we're going to find out you know, what the debate was there, how urgently they felt they had to act. And, of course, they cut the key rate then. They made it very clear that, you know, quantitative easing, bond purchases, whatever it takes basically is going to be done. Then we got the minutes of the March 15th meeting. So it's something I think is a bit different today in terms of how the information has been given to the press and what we're waiting to see. But um, it's pretty clear from what we have seen, rates at zero until the economy has weathered the virus. So, in other words, we have to see, and I think that raises the question, doesn't it, you guys, that what is weathering the virus? Is it getting to the point where the virus peaks and comes down? Is it having the economy show it's gotten through it? A lot of unanswered questions. Yeah, exactly. And I'm just looking through some of the notes, too, and it's talking about, you know, the pace of economic growth abroad was already subdued before the outbreak. I mean, they were also looking at, you know, that this wasn't just a U.S. thing, but this was obviously a global thing as well. And just looking at, you know, uncertainty in the markets, volatility in the markets, conditions in short-term funding markets also deteriorated sharply amid a decline in market liquidity and challenges in dealer intermediation. They were specifically going into the weeds of how how the financial markets were working or not working, and that is why you saw those unprecedented uh, actions and also the expansion of the balance sheet to make sure that there was liquidity in the markets. It was all about making sure also that those markets were operating uh, accurately, Jason. All right. So, Dave Wilson, come on in here. It looks like we're seeing equities take a little bit of a tick up, Not nothing dramatic uh, going on here, but tell us what's underneath uh, this trade based on the Fed, but also based on everything else that is happening in the world. 
Well, the S&P 500 is back toward its highs of the day and sort of backed off a bit before the uh, minutes were released. So uh, clearly that's uh, being taken as a positive, not a whole lot of a positive, but certainly uh, kind of helping things along. You know, what jumps out today's trading, I mean, we were seeing the travel-related shares rally as we have for a couple of days now. What's different this time, at least it got my attention, one is we're seeing the home builders with some pretty substantial gains. Pulte Group, notable in that score, it's up 10% in today's trading. Uh, Lenar D.R. Horton, also in the S&P 500, uh, also uh, showing some pretty substantial gains as well. But even more so, what's going on with the hospital chains? And if you think about an area that's being affected by the virus, I mean, you figure that's front and center at this point. You know, you've got HCA Healthcare, biggest owner of uh, hospitals on a for-profit basis, up more than 11% in today's trading. And smaller companies doing even better. Community health systems up 17.5%. Tenant healthcare up more than 26%. So whatever's happening, it looks like it's being interpreted as a positive for the hospitals here. Yeah, and I want to talk more about the markets, but I do want to also go back to those Fed minutes. And I'm looking at the bond market because it does look like a slight uh, uptick in yields, if ever so slightly. Ten-year was yielding about 0.72 before the Fed minutes, now up to 0.74. Again, minuscule, but nonetheless a little bit of a movement. Five-year note was yielding about 0.43. Now we're with a yield of 0.45. Two-year note, that shorter end of the yield curve was yielding yielding 0.02. It's now, I mean, sorry, 0.2. It's now yield 0.21. It's now yielding 0.24. So a little bit of an uptick. To uptake. Um, Kathleen, as you said, you know, all of this stuff is just coming across and we're all trying to make sense of it. Um, so Treasury's a little bit lower after that. Uh, Fed, mis- Fed minutes, officials advocated, quote, forceful monetary response. That is truly what we got, Kathleen. Well, we certainly did. And apparently, according to the minutes, um, we're looking at our um, market live blog, a few preferred to um, do a 50 basis point. Yeah, that's interesting. Meeting, right? That some people saying, hey, let's don't wait. You know, let's let's be as aggressive as we can, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think for the bond market, um, what they would fear in something like that is, is any hint that the Fed didn't say what we, we all we were just talking about. You're going to keep this response in place. You want a forceful monetary response, and you want to keep it in place until the virus has been vanquished. And, you know, Fed officials um, have said since then that they know that they can't cure the virus. They can't get test kits out faster. They can't do that. But what they can do is do everything they can to bolster the economy, bolster the financial markets throughout so that we don't get a, a, a bad financial crisis. There have been a lot of stresses and strains, but we've also seen that, that just, you know, you, you look every day to see if there's another headline on a new Fed program, right? Well, uh, and we're going to so hear from, sorry to interrupt, Kathleen, but we're running a short on time. We are going to hear from Jay Powell tomorrow, right? That's right. And uh, a webinar at uh, 10 a.m., uh, we heard from Charlie Evans from Chicago Fed, speaking to the Economic Club of Chicago, by the way. Um, and he also sees some, you know, long, drawn-out damage to the economy. Yeah. So it will be very important to hear what he tells us. Yeah. Jay All Paul right. Tomorrow. Well, thank you both so much. Kathleen Hayes, Global Economics and Policy Editor, joining us with her analysis of the Fenimans. We're going to have more on that yeah. uh, coming up in just a few minutes. Carol, our thanks to Dave Wilson as well. He'll be back a little bit later on with his chart and stock of the day. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master, along with Jason Kelly. And our top story certainly at this hour is the release of those minutes from the latest Fed me- uh, meetings, March 3rd and also March 15th. Let's get a little bit more analysis. Steve Blitz is back with us, Chief U.S. Economist at TS 
Lombard on the phone from New York City. So, Steve, hopefully you've had a few minutes to digest it, although it was a live release. So all of us were scrambling to kind of make sense of it because usually they're released a little bit of ahead of time. We can, you know, kind of figure out um, certainly our, our journalists who are in the lockup, the key points. Um, what stands out for you from what you've read so far? Well, honestly, but hi, first of all, hi, everybody. Hi. Um, I, I think what stands out to me is it's sort of a time capsule. You know, it's, it's like reading the minutes today from something that happened in 2008. I mean, so much has occurred from the time at which they met in terms of their own actions as well as uh, what happened to the economy since then. Uh, it has more of a – it's an interesting slice of – what they were thinking at the moment. And uh, I think one of the things that jumps out at me, which I was saying at the time, was uh, there were a number of FOMC members who said, well, you, with all everything that you're doing, don't cut the rate to zero right now. Just cut it 50 basis points and leave right. some room for later. And, um, and I think that was a valid point uh, that, that they were making uh, because – Everything the Fed has done, right, um, to use a, a, a phrase that was popular in 2008, was to ring fence, in effect, the uh, government-mandated contraction uh, and, that, and, the, and the financial impact that that created and to ring fence it from basically spilling into the broader economy to the point that something even worse, you know, gets created. But you can't do that with this, uh, right? But you can't because, ring fence this. Right. The broader economy was impacted from day one, pretty much. Right. Right. So what you try and do is, by ring fencing, what I mean is make sure all these good businesses that have been, are now shuttered or severely impacted, make sure that they have cash that they can reopen with and that they don't actually go out of business. Um, and then on the market side, make sure that everybody who is stressed in their positions who needed to raise cash could sell securities, that there could be a market price in securities, which if you remember was part of the problem with Bear and with uh, Lehman, um, that there's a price for these securities. And if they have to be the bid and the offer side of the market, that is the Fed, they will be to allow that. So if you allow that to occur and you push credit where where firms are shuttered, then you the presumption is you have something that's still viable so that when the mandated shutdown ends or as it ends, because it's not going to just end in one fell swoop, we know that, right. that as it ends, then these businesses can come back to life again. Whereas if you don't do that, and this is what I mean by, by the uh, um, ring fencing, if you don't do that, then this thing just cascades through. And then when everyone goes back to work, that's great. But so many businesses will just, just be permanently closed. And so what do you want to hear? So we're going to hear, at least from a speech perspective, from Jay Powell tomorrow. We're continuing to hear from Fed speakers. What more do you want to hear that may be more up-to-date and relevant that the Fed is thinking about or doing, given, uh, as you say, Steve, that you know this, this feels a little bit outdated, these minutes at, at this moment in time, given how fast the world is moving? Yeah, I, I think there's two things here. And I think one is, um, what's the stimulus plan, right? So mm -hmm. everything they've done is to keep everything together. 
And I guess the stimulus plan is through the SPVs, and I'd like to hear more about that and more about we keep getting bits and pieces of information about this lending to Main Street business, and I'd like to hear a little bit more specifically about what that is and how that's going to work. Um, and it, But then I guess the stimulus is just for them to support whatever the fiscal side is right. because there's no more stimulus that they can really offer. And then while it's early to think about this, and I admit that, but triage is not policy. And what is your policy, that is the Fed, what is the Fed's policy as we reopen? Because their thumb is on the scales of capital market prices everywhere. They're the both sides of the market almost everywhere. Um, What is their plan? What is their thought to unwind where they are? And are they going to go back to what they were over the last expansion, which is being the leverage for the system. Their balance sheet was a leverage for the system to allow um, borrowing and, 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 and equity issuance to occur, right. at the same time quashing but financial sector to, leverage. To be fair, and Steve, we've just got about 45 seconds left here. I mean, the Fed's going to have to watch how this evolves on the other side, just like the rest of us. We don't know what the longer-term impact will be, what kind of behavior will we see you know, in individuals and in companies. We just don't know yet. I mean, we were talking to John Wertheim, well-known to the sports industry, and saying that you know, 2020 is kind of a loss when it comes to sports at this point. So um, just got about 30 seconds left here. I, I, I agree with you completely, and I don't expect him to answer that, but I think um, I think it's something, though, that we should be thinking about uh, as the economy slowly does recover. And remember, our view is that the lows aren't into the equity market. We're looking at 1800 2000 I still see a negative GDP for the third quarter. Um, the overhang of what's occurred is going to extend basically into the third quarter. Very slow return, and GDP doesn't get back to where it was in the fourth quarter of 2019 until late 2022. All right. We really appreciate that instant analysis. Uh, Fast-moving this afternoon, especially without that lockup. Steve Blitz, Chief U.S. Economist for T.S. Lombard, joining us on the phone from New York City. Stay safe. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Let's turn to the doc our guy, Dr. Ian Lesbader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU's Langone Medical Center, joining us on the phone from New York City. We love checking in with him because he gives it to us straight. Uh, Dr. Lesbader, how you doing? Hi, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Definitely challenging times out there. Yeah. Uh, Today, having done uh, 20 telemedicine visits, many patients with, you know, really classic COVID symptoms, uh, loss of smell and fever, cough. I personally know about 20 friends and colleagues with uh, diagnosed COVID, a number of physicians who've uh, acquired it, some fortunately most doing fairly well. Some have unfortunately been hospitalized. So very uh, challenging times, or really it's all hands on deck. Our friends who are in dermatology, urology are being called into the hospital to really help manage the huge volume of patients. So it's, uh, it's a challenge. So when you read or, you know, hear Anthony Fauci, as we know, uh, at uh, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, you know, very well known now because of the virus updates oh, that we sure. all see on a daily basis, when he says, 
um, Dr. Les Bader, that the start of a turnaround in the fight against the virus could come after this week. How do you see that? How do you interpret it? Because I think it is important that we not run in too fast, but how do you interpret that thinking? Well, Dr. Fauci is uh, is a legend. I remember him from the HIV days back in the 80s, and uh, so he he is he is a very credible uh, expert for a long time. And uh, and and hopefully the models are correct, and hopefully the numbers are correct. I can tell you the system, certainly the hospital system, is is at max capacity and and certainly very strained. Um, it's always challenging when when some of your colleagues are succumbing to the same disease that that you're treating, and I think we have frustrations. I, I think a lot of the numbers we have are inaccurate mm-hmm. uh, because we really don't have testing. Getting um, mildly symptomatic patients tested uh, is very difficult. You know what's advertised is sort of the 15-minute turnaround is very very limited. People are asking intelligently. I must say, patients asking about antibody testing. They think they had it. Is it safe to go out? Uh, those IgM early antibodies and IgG antibodies, so many people, including physicians, would like to be tested. And I think when we do test all those people, we're going to see the case number much, much higher than what's officially reported. So hopefully he's right. Hopefully the uh, the peak is sort of cresting at this time uh, because the system certainly is is strained. I, I myself will be on call in the hospital next weekend, so uh, certainly I would. It, it would be great if the numbers begin to come right. down. And we also really need better better treatment. A lot of patients are in um, studies for that Plaquenil, hydroxychloroquine, and ZPAC, uh, IL-6 inhibitors. But we really also are lacking data on what's the right approach to treat people. So that's a lot of supportive care. My sense is when all this data is in and all the ventilators have arrived, the storm will have passed. And in uh, June or July, we'll have 10,000 extra ventilators and lots of studies. And, uh, you know, most yeah. of the storm will have passed, unfortunately. Right. So only got about a minute left, Dr. Les Bader. I got to ask you just from a very practical perspective, because we're talking about it in our house. When do we wear a mask? You know, in general, I think it, it, it's good to be safe. Most people in their household, if they've had it, they've probably exposed other people. So unless someone for sure in the house knows you're in quarantine, you have it, no one else did, that's reasonable. It is reasonable to wear outside, although I must say there are so few people on the street. You have right. more, you know, you've got 20, 30 feet. But I think if you're going into uh, a closer space, it's reasonable if you're sure you haven't had it uh, to wear it, play it safe. You know, gloves, if you wash your hands regularly, are probably probably unnecessary. So I think it, it uh, more is better when it comes uh, comes to masks. I think that's reasonable to do. I'm going to replay that for my teenage daughter who keeps fighting me on <laughs> it. She's like, I can't yeah. breathe through it. I'm like, just put it on or just yeah. wear it. Figure it out. Yeah. Figure it out, <sighs> kid. Figure it out. You, you do get used to it. And I think this is also a time to think about, I hate to say it, advanced directives. Many patients who are older, who are sick, we know they get in the ICU. It's an 80% mortality. Yeah. 20% leave the ICU. Think about about, it doesn't yeah. hurt to sort of say, what do I want aggressive what? care? Yeah. Important to think about that. All right. We're going to put, we're going to talk with you more about that the next time we catch up. And we've been very fortunate that you're able to spend some time with us just about every week. We really appreciate it. Dr. Ian Lesbader, stay safe uh, out there. Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine over at Langone. 
Medical Center. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. I also think it's notable, and I just want to take a moment to, to point out that Newsom also has been doing some fairly remarkable things in terms of not just allocating his state's resources within the state, but also reallocating them when they're not needed, sending ventilators to New York no, and that's other what places. I said. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. it's really yeah. just amazing to think about how important New York, California, and all of this is, especially as we move on, as you say, to this next phase. It's really... Yeah. Um, it's an important thing to to keep track of, and as you say, it's it's ventilators, but you know the PPE and everything else. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they said their initial goals were 500 million PPE, you know, in all its various forms, and that of course, as the you know the trend line and how the virus, um, you know, the models how they played out has given them an opportunity to kind of take a, a second look at that, and then that's how they've been able to certainly spread out the equipment, not just to their state but to other states. So. You think I don't listen to you. I listen to you. I listen to you all the time. feel free to tweet me. Does he always (laughs) listen to me? I don't think so. I mostly listen to you. You know who I always (laughs) listen to and read, though, is Michelle Michelle Davis. Davis. Uh, What a rock star during all of this, because we're always interested in what's going on on Wall Street, maybe now more than ever, because at the crux of this geographically, but also in terms of the recovery, really important to understand what's going on there. Uh, She joins us on the phone from Vermont. Michelle Davis does finance reporter. Her story yesterday, I feel like, set the tone for everything that's happening. Greed and fear collide. Wall Street calls traders back to the office. So, Michelle, help us understand what's going on when it comes to Wall Street, people going to work, not going to work. What'd you find? So, we have been hearing from traders across Wall Street that they are getting pressure uh, from managers to go back into the office, even as, you know, infections rise around them, you know, not only around New York City, but on, in some cases on, on the trading floors that they had been working on. Um, and I, I think this is a really important story because when we talk about Wall Street and, and traders, you know, these are white collar workers that, you know, they're not um, a group of people that tends to elicit much empathy from the public, but they're people who are facing serious pressure here to choose between, you know, keeping their jobs in some cases if they're, if people senior to them are, are pressuring them to come in um, and putting themselves and, and their families at risk or, or training or straining the uh, health system. I got to tell you, greed and fear collide. That has been our theme since we saw it on the Bloomberg terminal, because it does feel like as there are more, Michelle, you know, optimistic trend lines when it comes to the virus, hardly are we out of it. But um, you can see that folks are saying, I saw it in my neighborhood. My daughter and I were walking our dog and there were more people out yesterday. And we were like, what's going on here? Because we still, you know, we've still got to be in this shutdown mode in order to make sure that the models, you know, work for us here. So, um, you know, what are you, so what are you hearing from individuals? Are they, they're feeling pressured. Um, What are you hearing from the firms who say, wait, we're not pressuring them? So it's, of course, uh, very mixed. There are some firms like Goldman Sachs that has said publicly that, you know, I, a very high percentage, more than 90% of their employees are working from home and, and have been able to successfully do that. At J.P. Morgan, for, for the trading workforce, the, it's closer to 80% working from home, 20% on the trading floor. And, you know, the banks say that this is all a balancing act. They are trying to juggle keeping markets functioning, like traders are 
an essential part of market stability. And, and people say that if we were to just close the market so everyone could stay home, it would lead to way deeper issues in terms of stability and, and you know, of the market structure and, and liquidity. But um, the people I'm talking to say, at least at JP Morgan, we uh, got our hands on this email that showed that um, the senior credit uh, head had told his employees that even though overall at the firm, you know, the, the directive has been, please work from home if you can, um, this manager had said, you are, ha- you have to be on the trading floor, you have to be in the office, unless you have a, a condition and you have a doctor's note. So uh, the banks are saying, you know, they would never force anyone to come in who doesn't feel comfortable coming in. But Yeah, but you, you know how to- that is. Jason and I talked about so that. So that's <laughs> the thing. So that is the thing that I keep zeroing in on, Carol and I both, Michelle, which is this notion of there is a very big difference. I think we're all learning it between someone saying, listen, if you don't feel comfortable, you don't have to come in and basically saying, look, we are doing this for your own good and for the good of the firm and for the good of society, candidly. I do feel like that's a vast difference that you guys really zeroed in on this story. And we know about ambition. We know about you know people wanting to do a good job and provide for their families and all those different things. But at what cost? And this isn't just about you know someone saying, well, I'm a tough guy. This is about like the number of people who are out and social distance and, and the spread of this virus, right? Yeah, and and I talked to people who who pushed back on this idea that you know they needed to be at the office to be able to to you know appropriately do their jobs. Some of the people I talked to had been working from home already, and and things had been going smoothly, and then they got calls from managers yeah. or, or pressure from other people to come back in, uh, just I guess to to differentiate themselves from other firms that that maybe had a larger workforce uh, at home. I think this is going to be so fascinating to watch, Um, you know, especially again, like this is our sandbox that we play in Wall Street and you cover it, as we said, so well, Michelle. But, you know, as a lot of New York, especially when it goes comes to finance, as New York finance goes, so goes a lot of the rest of the world. And and you do just wonder uh, what this looks like on the other side and whether you do have a meaningful number of people, Carol, who stand up and say, you know what? No, I'm not going to do that. That's not it's not good for me. It's not good for my family. And I, I can't I can't do this anymore. Yeah, exactly. And we've seen this in organizations, right, where this yep. has gone on, where, you know, it's not until we feel like a number of people or our managers are doing it that yes. we feel comfortable about doing it. Setting the tone. Absolutely. All right. Michelle Davis, thank you so much. Always good to catch up with you. Michelle Davis, finance reporter, rock star for Bloomberg. Uh, been all over this story. Joining us on the phone from Vermont. Carol? Yeah, I think it's really important. And I just think um, this is going to be key in terms of when we get on the other side of this and how we all go back to it. And I think there's going to have to be some coordination between companies and organizations and certainly within governments, even though states are going to probably do it at different times. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, I feel like we've just been we've been having the show of like our favorites in, in, in many ways. It's like homecoming. I've, it homecoming. really is. The and virus, really, the COVID-19 version. I know. We go from Michelle Davis to, to now one of our, one of my long-term friends, a friend of the show, uh, Dan Morgan, down with Synovus in Atlanta. Known him for a long time. He's been looking at the markets and he's really done some thoughtful analysis. So, uh, Dan, great to have you with us. And first of all, how are you doing? How's it going down in Atlanta. Oh, things are good. Hi, Jason and Carol. It's a hey. little quiet down here when you're driving around on the streets. I don't know if it's like that in New York, but uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's like that everywhere, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I do wonder, you know, just to, to 
dwell for a minute on this, uh, Dan. You know, Atlanta uh, obviously has been different, and, and our listeners and, and poor Carol have had me listen to, to had to listen to me, you know, talk about maybe uh, the governor of Georgia being a little bit behind the curve in terms of closing things down and, and sheltering in place. But sounds like uh, Atlanta is taking it a little more seriously these days in Georgia. Yeah, you're right, Jason. I think initially it was kind of a thought that uh, there were these kind of epicenters like New York City and San Francisco, and it wasn't quite as a big deal here in Georgia. But, uh, you know, the number of cases picked up and it's become more of an issue. And I think they have uh, taken on pretty much the same precautions now that are just pretty much everywhere else. Hey, you know, Dan, is there an understanding? Like, you know, it's hard for us, certainly here in New York, you know, we see it firsthand. We understand how serious it is and we're all in lockdown. But I do wonder how other states are feeling when they're like, you know, it's not so bad here. But do we all understand kind of we're all in this together, do you think? Yeah, I think so, Carol. I mean, you know, like initially, I think it was thought that it was kind of a a separatist type of thing. But I think now, um, you know, we have the disease center here in downtown Atlanta. So, you know, President Trump is down here very often doing uh, conferences. So uh, I think, you know, I think at this point, like you said, Carol, I think we all feel like it's uh, something that everyone has to fight together. All right. So you're an investor. At the end of the day, you look at the markets, you look at individual stocks. Dan, what do you make of this? And as I alluded to, you've been doing this for some time. You've seen some downturns. You've seen some crises. How do you approach this one maybe a little bit differently? Well, you're right, Jason. I mean, you think uh, about it, and I hate to admit this on the air in front of everyone, but I've been in the business since 1987. And when I started, the Dow was at 2,000. And uh, I went through Black Monday, and uh, the Dow is now at 22,000. So I have a little different perspective than maybe somebody who just got in the market maybe the last five or 10 years ago. But, you know, this is obviously a huge pullback. It's, you know, in terms of, you know, from top to bottom, you know, it's about a third. It wasn't quite as bad as the housing bubble. You know, that was what, 56% from the top to the bottom. So, you know, it's it's not as bad. But, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I'm kind of taking it in stride. Um, you know, it's, it is a huge negative. There's sectors that have been absolutely obliterated. Yeah. Uh, but there's also, you know, there's also some interesting opportunities out there uh, in terms of various stocks and sectors that, uh, you know, investors could kind of think about, you know, going forward uh, in this kind of new COVID-19 environment. So yeah. tell us about some of those. What are you thinking about? Yeah. Well, you know, technology, you know, that's my area of focus. Yeah. Um, you know, and it, again, it's, you know, a lot of the core themes that we kind of started off the year talking about, Jason and Carol, uh, I think are still in place. I mean, you think about, you know, the big build out in terms of the data center space, in terms of infrastructure as a service, in terms of cloud. I mean, that still I don't expect to really change. Um, so that should be a good area going forward. You also think about the rollout of 5G. Everybody's saying now that Apple's going to probably push that into the first quarter of calendar 21, but I still expect that to continue to roll forward. So even though we know about all the bad stuff that's going to happen, right? Yeah. You know, in some of these sectors, and you can just keep reporting about it all day long, it's so depressing. It's nice to kind of take a step back and say, wait a minute, you know, it's not all that bad. There are some certain things that are good well, out there, and there are some certain sectors and companies that are actually going to benefit from this. Dan, I got to ask you, because one of the stories that Jason and I talked about, specifically for our New York audience, was about the creation of a WFH ETF, work from home ETF, about oh, yeah. the expectations that more people will ultimately be working from home after we get through this virus, and that's going to benefit cloud companies and a few others. Do you buy into that? 
Well, Carol, can I be a part of this so that I can be like Fang and get a code name and get some sort of copyright off of this? I know. I want. I want an and, ETF. <laughs> you know, that would be awesome. Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you think about the names in that group, right? We all know them, right? Zoom Video Technology, which did an IPO, you know, recently, and it's just done fabulous, right? That's been one of the plays in that space. Um, you know, you think of Microsoft with their Teams app. That's another area. Slack, which isn't quite profitable. And then, like you said, Carol, you start to kind of take that out and say, well, what does that mean for the cloud, right? And then you think of like Amazon and AWS and Azure with Microsoft. And then you look down at the grandeur level in terms of who's producing the data center chips like Nivida and AMD and so forth. So I think you could put something together like that. That would be really cool. And, uh, you know, trademark it or codename it, and uh, then everyone will refer it to that, and then you can have the trademark, uh, you know, revenue that comes off of it. And so how much do you worry, I guess, Dan, that some of these gains when it comes to some of the tech names and are, are short-lived only because the world sort of reverts back? How do you sort of make the call between what is – and you and I used to talk about this when we talked about semiconductor conductors like what's cyclical and what's secular in terms of right. you know the these changes uh how wary are you uh, of the of the world snapping back are you so convinced like many are that the world has just fundamentally changed well I, th I think it has to some degree jason and like the names that we just talked about and some of these themes they were in place before yeah, good right? point good and point. now we're kind of saying wow it's even bigger than we thought so i would expect that to continue going forward and you know i would agree with you i think it's going to be a little bit slower coming out of the second quarter than people would have originally expected i think most of the research i was seeing initially was going to be like a v-shaped recovery but now we go back and we see what's happening over in China and we see how kind of slow they are yeah. to get back on board. You start to wonder if this thing's going to really linger throughout the remainder of the year. So I would agree with your first point, Jason, and that is that, you know, this is kind of a post-COVID-19 environment. And I don't know if we're ever going to go back to the way it was before in our thinking. And, you know, these are still fundamentally sound themes that I think will play out even if we see that reversion, like you meant, going back to the, the more traditional legacy sectors. So, Dan, when you sit back and just take a break and you think about, like, you know, you, like Jason, like myself, like a lot of others, you know, we have seen different crises, whether it was 9-11, whether it was certainly the financial crisis, you know, other economic and market meltdowns. This one, though, like folks are saying, you're going to be telling your grandkids about this one, you know, provided that your grandkids, you know, aren't giving you the next version of COVID, you know, 35. Well, that, was, that was the Michael Lewis line, right? <laughs> yeah. Thank you for giving him credit because it was yeah. like classic. Like I read yeah. it this morning and I'm thinking, yeah, like, I, I don't know. How do you see this when you when your brain has a moment to breathe and you just think about kind of what we're going through and the impact it's having and will have maybe longer term? I don't know what comes to mind. Well, you're right, Carol, because, you know, you go back and you look at all these other so-called pandemics, right, that have occurred recently, right, that we can remember, right, the SARS, yeah. you know, you think of Ebola, you think of all these different things that are out there, you had bird flu, Zika, so this is kind of, you know, I think initially that's how we looked at it, right? When the news started coming out of China, we're kind of like, okay, well, yeah, I get that, and yeah, we may get a little bit of a pullback, and but... I don't, you know, like you said, Carol, I don't think we could ever have anticipated, you know, kind of the complete shutdown of the economy for the next couple of months and, you know, what would be the impact of that. So, you know, if you go back and you think in terms of, you know, these previous huge corrections, and of course the one that always comes to mind because 
you know, basically the fact that it's the most recent that most people can, you know, remember is obviously the big housing bubble. And, yeah. you know, the only thing I can say, and again, it's it's kind of strange because I know everybody's so negative, but I'm, I'm trying to stay positive. And that is that, you know, if we look at where the economy was back then, let's say, you know, uh, in 2007, around you got to do this in 20 seconds, my friend. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. The economy's <laughs> in much better shape than it was back then if we look at unemployment and, and other things yeah. such as household debt and all these other variables that we look at. So I'm, I'm still optimistic, guys, and I hope you guys can stay uh, positive on the show. All we right, are. We will. We and love talking to you. And even more optimistic having talked to you. Absolutely. All right. Happy Easter, Dan Ward. Hope you uh, <laughs> get to at least virtually celebrate it down there at Christ the King. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed. Time for the drive to the close on this Wednesday. Rich Weiss is with us, Chief Investment Officer of Multi-Asset Strategies at American Century Investments, some $154 billion in assets under management. He joins us on the phone in Los Angeles. Rich, nice to have you here with, the, here with us. How are you doing? Oh, we're hanging in out here. You know, the wave hasn't come out yet. Uh, we're obviously watching you guys very closely, but we're doing okay. You're doing okay. Yeah, it's it's been interesting, I, I feel like, to watch uh, from aco- across the country what's going on out there and probably vice versa there. Uh, Rich, you know, we've got, and Carol and I have talked a lot about this, you know, you got Andrew Cuomo here, Gavin Newsom there, um, you know, two guys who've really seemingly stepped to the fore and, and obviously for similar reasons because heavily populated states, very uh, critical to the economy and critical for for the economies of both states to, to get back on their feet. Clearly, that is on, on their minds as well, I would imagine. Oh, yeah, no question. We're very appreciative of the actions of uh, both governors of both states. Uh, but, you know, we're not taking it for granted out here. I can't speak for everyone, but uh, we're definitely preparing for the worst and hoping for the best like everyone else. Well, I'm I'm curious then, you know, how your clients are feeling at this point, too. I mean, this has been, you know, uh, we have seen crises. We've all lived through the financial crisis, but the volatility, the swings that we saw, certainly in the market, and then to see our economy, not just a sector of the economy, but the economy in the United States really come to a standstill, that is unprecedented, certainly in our lifetime. Oh, no question. And, and investor reactions, as you'd expect, are running the gamut or spanning the, the full spectrum from fear to greed and back again. Um, and it's it's following a number of things, not the least of which is the trajectory of the coronavirus, right? This, this is a, an unusual situation where um, the, the cause and the remedies are from outside the realm of the economic and financial world, right? It's if, if you want a good forecast of uh, stock earnings, you really need to ask a medical doctor at this point. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, and, and that fear versus greed, you know, we were trying to, we were taping, Carol and I were our uh, weekend uh, show, our weekend radio show this morning, sort of piecing together some of the good interviews that we've had this week. And 
you know, the, the two things that we identified were fear versus greed and markets versus medical. You know, those seem to be the things that everyone's wrestling with. So as an investor, and now we've had the Fed, you know, sort of retroactively weigh in with these minutes today. What do you make of it? What do you do at this moment in terms of helping folks manage a portfolio? Sure. Well, uh, a number of things. You know, if you if you look at it, the environment, um, there, there's some good news more recently, the easing of the credit crunch, the hoped for oil deal uh, being imminent, the likelihood that this is a V shape as opposed to a U shape recovery. Uh, there's good news coming out from, uh, you know, a number of countries and states on the trajectory of the virus, uh, the medical front regarding treatment massive monetary and fiscal stimulus and, and likely another phase, uh, phase four to come. But a lot of that good news is not so much good news as it is an attenuation of the bad news. Mm. You know, it's not as bad as we thought, uh, kind of like red meat or my high school French. You know, it's not as bad as we thought, but it's still pretty bad. And there's a big difference between um, turning the corner and just seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. I, right. It is likely, we believe, that we haven't hit the true bottom yet. It's still pretty murky down there. Credit downgrades keep coming. Uh, there's rising defaults and bankruptcies. Supply chain disruptions economically around the world are really not fully fleshed out. There's many secondary and tertiary effects to come. So we are we are not jumping back into this market um, Full bore. Now, if if there are speculative monies and and you have clients that have a very high tolerance for risk, by all means, and they have some powder that they kept dry, there's a lot of bottom feeding going on. But for many of our clients, especially in our uh, one choice target date funds, these are retirement assets. Uh, as we've said many times, you want to treat your 401k like you treat your face and not touch it. <laughs> That's good. That's really good. I'm going to use that. That's have you, really, have really. Have you been working on really that good. one, Rich? <laughs> uh, I, actually, I, I, to be honest, I borrowed it, but okay. it's a good one. In it. <laughs> no, but I do wonder. You know, every time we, you know, so many folks though do come on and say, "Well, it's long term. You're, you know, you're focused for the long term. You know, not a time to sell. Well, certainly not time to sell at the bottom. But you know, people lost a lot of money. Uh, even though we've bounced back, I mean, this whole idea of preservation of capital that needs yeah. to be, you know, part of your investment theses. Uh, no question. Now, uh, you know, hoping or assuming your portfolio was well set up from the get-go, uh, you know, that is in terms of its asset allocation, You, it's not that you want to stick your head in the sand and not do anything. I mean, certainly we would not advise knee-jerk reacting or selling in a panic, but managing your asset allocation through a steady or methodical rebalancing algorithm is a tried-and-true way to navigate times like these. In other words – yeah. Um, as the market moves and your portfolio drifts away from your strategic or normal or targeted asset allocation, you want to rebalance back to that target periodically uh, so that you stay true to your appropriate asset allocation and risk tolerance. Now, if you if you do it ad hoc or knee jerk, that's not going to work. If if you do it too often or too frequently, then it incur a lot of transaction costs and just. Uh, you know, be subject to whipsawing, but a steady methodical program of rebalancing your asset allocation is always a smart move, especially in volatile times. 
All right. Well, we really appreciate the time you've given us uh, some nice, uh, nice little quotable quotes, some sound bites. We're definitely going to be uh, stealing from you going forward. I see T-shirts uh, and bumper really, stickers in exactly. his future. I really, I really like it. All right. Rich Weiss is chief investment officer of Multi Asset Strategies for American Century Investments. They look after about 154 billion dollars. Yeah. He joined us on the phone from California. So a big money manager, and you got to listen. They they're managing so much money for yeah. so many different people. Yeah. They've got to have some pretty coaching advice, I would but, imagine. But this is another, you know, reminder and lesson that, right, you know, when the markets are constantly hitting record high after record high, it doesn't mean it's going to always go that way. And you never yeah. know when something can come out, you know, that nobody was predicting like the virus and really bring down your investments a lot. So if you're closer to retirement, you have to make sure that you're protecting yourself against these unforeseen um, stresses on the market. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.